Life Sciences is a wonderful, uh, is a wonderful setting uh, for uh, creative thinkers uh, because uh, there are so many variables uh, in terms of uh, what you can develop uh, as uh, new therapies, uh, new applications. Uh, the competitive landscape uh, is uh, continuously evolving. Uh, um, the financial uh, side uh, needs uh, a lot of creativity in order to have uh, the right uh, mixture of uh, funding and the creation of value at uh, each uh, stage of funding in order to continue to grow with uh, uh, your path uh, toward uh, an exit. So nothing peculiar mm. of life sciences, but certainly it's uh, plenty of, uh, of uh, very promising uh, perspectives uh, that we try to capture uh, in every venture where uh, we invest. Kayleigh, what was the turning point that led you to become a life sciences investor and operator? Well, yeah, I started uh, an interesting uh, mission uh, for uh, the Italian Confederation of Industrialists uh, to take my experience uh, as general manager at IBM uh, to the benefit of uh, the medium and small enterprises in Italy in order to generate uh, innovation uh, and uh, new businesses. One of the sources of innovation is a traditional university. And uh, I started uh, creating a scouting program with uh, some of uh, the most important universities in Italy to generate ideas uh, that could uh, be transformed into projects, uh, projects into companies and company into scale-ups and eventually unicorns. In that process, uh, I started meeting uh, with uh, very good uh, scientific uh, leaders uh, that turned out uh, to be my co-founders in a number of uh, both biotech uh, and uh, medtech uh, ventures uh, that I funded uh, initially. And then with uh, that experience, uh, I started uh, leveraging uh, my own capital uh, through my family office uh, to build uh, and support uh, other ventures uh, where I aggregate uh, other private investors uh, and venture capital funds uh, in order to reach uh, their goal. All right. That's a very interesting story, but we'll dig back more into it later. Welcome back to How It's Med, the podcast in which we chat with those shaping the future of healthcare and health tech. My name is Jeff, and on this podcast, we hear from leading investors, startup operators, and occasionally an ex-general manager of IBM Global Services so that you too can learn from their stories, secrets, and skills uh, so that you can be better equipped to make a positive impact on the lives of others through healthcare and health tech. This time around, we're joined by Michele Marzola, currently a lead investor in many medtech startups, but most importantly for today, the co-founder and chief executive officer of X-Surgical. Michele, how are you doing? Well, yeah, we are uh, doing pretty well in many of uh, my portfolio companies. Uh, we're uh, progressing uh, on many fronts uh, in my drug development activities in oncology and uh, in medical uh, devices, uh, exurgical is uh, one of the most important uh, of my medtech uh, ventures, uh, where uh, we are building uh, the surgical robots uh, for the, the next uh, generation of applications, uh, going beyond uh, the limitations of uh, the Da Vinci robots uh, and uh, addressing uh, new markets uh, such as uh, the 
uh, open field applications uh, for the mission critical uh, situations uh, such as uh, battlefield uh, or the civilian emergencies. Honestly, I, I have no clue how you do so much and also do it in what you mentioned was the 38 degree weather of Italy in the summer. So congrats to you. Um, but I, I generally like to dig a bit into the background of the people who come on because it's our histories that inform the the actions that we take in the present day and in the future. Um, your pre-life sciences career was very much steeped in consulting. Um, yeah. Why did you choose to go down this path and how did it add or take away from the difficulties of entering the life sciences field? Well, in fact, you know, so many things that, that happen in life uh, are more uh, due to the opportunities uh, that you find uh, on your path uh, than on uh, rational uh, choices. Uh, so I made the rational choice uh, when uh, I finished university to go for the uh, I did my uh, PhD in uh, mechanical engineering, and then I went uh, to do an MBA at Columbia University and uh, made a, a conscious choice of uh, creating uh, my academic path uh, to become one of uh, the top management consultants, which uh, I did. Uh, I had a very fast career, becoming uh, the youngest principal at uh, Busallen and Hamilton in uh, the 80s. And um, and then uh, I became also one of the youngest uh, vice president at IBM at age of 35. So those were uh, a rational path uh, toward a uh, career uh, in uh, in large uh, multinational firms or uh, top consulting firms. The change toward life science uh, has uh, been uh, due more to the opportunities uh, of meeting my current co-founders, uh, professors uh, in uh, immunology, professors in uh, robotics, uh, um, great uh, co-founders uh, in uh, various disciplines. Uh, and uh, then I developed a taste uh, for the investing and developing companies in life sciences, where uh, I have to say um, it is a marvel uh, how we can combine uh, human ingenuity with uh, science uh, in order to arrive uh, to radical changes uh, for the better outcome uh, for the humanity because uh, developing new therapies uh, for uh, oncological problems, uh, for uh, mental uh, health, uh, for uh, surgery, for orthopedics uh, is uh, something that changes uh, the lives uh, not uh, to the few hundreds uh, but uh, to the few millions. Uh, so. That's a very important thing uh, to me. Yeah, that's fair enough. I see how your background in engineering and then management consulting with your experience in M&A could have a very, I guess, uh, informative impact as to how you approach the deals, the life sciences deals and companies that you work with now. So certainly they help smooth the way. Did those previous experiences provide a challenge, at least in terms of a need to shift mentality at all when coming into the life sciences startups that you're now involved with? Yes and no. Uh, any management experience helps uh, when uh, you apply it uh, to life sciences. Uh, it is, uh, I, I'm, I'm certainly using uh, a lot of my initial experiences in uh, strategic thinking uh, 
in uh, competitive mapping, uh, in uh, developing uh, scenery, a scenario for uh, the future evolution of a company, and uh, also in the financial uh, details uh, of uh, what it takes uh, in terms of funding, uh, leverage, uh, potential outcome uh, in order to create uh, the maximum value for uh, the companies where I invest. On the other hand, mm -hmm. uh, life sciences is a wonderful uh, is a wonderful setting uh, for uh, creative thinkers uh, because uh, there are so many variables uh, in terms of uh, what you can develop uh, as uh, new therapies, uh, new applications. Uh, the competitive landscape uh, is uh, continuously evolving. Uh, um, the financial uh, side uh, needs uh, a lot of creativity in order to have. Uh, the right uh, mixture of uh, funding and the creation of value at uh, each uh, stage of funding in order to continue to grow with uh, uh, your path uh, toward uh, an exit. So nothing peculiar mm. of life sciences, but certainly it's uh, plenty of, uh, of uh, very promising uh, perspectives uh, that we try to capture uh, in every venture where uh, we invest. That's fair enough. One of the most interesting experiences that you have or that you had before you joined your work with life sciences sector uh, was your work with IBM. What were your most cherished experiences during this period of your work and how do their impacts continue to reverberate through your work today? Well, at IBM, I had uh, an interesting uh, mission of uh, developing uh, a consulting entity, so a professional service uh, within a large corporate. Uh, and uh, I've been able to shape uh, new rules uh, and uh, new processes uh, that were compatible uh, with uh, the traditional processes of a uh, large manufacturing company like IBM was at uh, that time. And um, uh, that uh, creativity uh, permitted to develop uh, new leadership uh, experiences uh, in uh, the global services uh, division where uh, I took a uh, very large responsibility leading businesses uh, for several billion of revenues uh, every year. That's a top management experience uh, that I'm trying uh, to apply in terms of vision and discipline uh, also in life sciences. Uh, and. Um, any company that would like to be a large company needs to know what it means uh, to be a billion dollar company in uh, value and in revenue. And this is sometimes lacking uh, in, uh, in life science uh, startups. And uh, I'm trying to instill this uh, vision and discipline. So um, on the other hand, uh, other things uh, that I've done and uh, that I'm very proud of uh, at uh, the IBM time, I have uh, very little applications uh, in, in life sciences. Uh, I've been one of the initial uh, inventors and authors of uh, intelligent networks uh, and uh, smart cities, uh, smart grids. Uh, and uh, that's uh, an opportunity which I created at IBM uh, and uh, then uh, has uh, basically no application in, uh, in life sciences. But also uh, being it's a different part of the life and different experiences. That's super interesting. Your work really is diverse in its nature overall. But as we mentioned in your work with, uh, I guess, an innovation group, 
uh, for industrialists in Northeast Italy, I believe it was, um, yeah. you, you, you've managed to pivot your way into life sciences. Um, who are the most interesting people that you met during this initial foray, uh, into life sciences who then informed the key ventures that you've pursued since? Well, certainly some of my co-founders, um, one of uh, the greatest uh, co-founder I have is uh, Professor Marco Colombatti, Professor of Immunology at uh, the University of Verona. Extremely competent uh, in his uh, domain, clearly being a professor, but uh, with uh, a great vision on uh, how the science can evolve and uh, an extremely good uh, co-leader uh, in uh, businesses because uh, he always knows uh, when he needs to lead uh, and when uh, he needs uh, to follow. And uh, we work uh, seamlessly and uh, in a very complementary way. Other experiences with uh, academic co-founders have been uh, less successful. And uh, sometimes it is uh, difficult uh, to instill uh, the business uh, needs uh, in uh, the minds of, uh, of academic professors. One of these professors once uh, told me, you know, you cannot dictate uh, the timing to the science. Uh, and they said, yes, but uh, when you have a burn rate of uh, 100,000 per month, uh, you need to know how long it takes uh, to develop uh, um, a new bl blueprint or a design because uh, I need to provide 100,000 every month. Uh, and if your science uh, takes uh, one month uh, is 100,000, if it takes 10 months uh, is uh, a million. And if it takes uh, 100 years uh, is impossible. <laughs> so it's. So, um, yeah, there, there are always interesting learnings uh, that you, that you do in a meeting with uh, scientific co-founders. Huh? Mm -hmm. It, it seems like that's a common problem everywhere in academia because academia is so much focused on getting the result, res I guess, separate from the limitations to some extent of the economic bounds of innovation that occur in bringing a product to market overall. But uh, we first met or we first interacted when you uh, told me a little bit about uh, X-Surgical. So how did the story of X-Surgical come together and how did it tie into the narrative that we just talked about there with academic founders being either easy or difficult to work with in starting an amazing new company for well, this is uh, an interesting endeavor huh? that actually started with uh, the work of my, one of my co-founders at uh, the JPL uh, laboratory in, um, in California. At uh, JPL, which is part of NASA, they developed uh, a robot uh, designed uh, to fit on a spacecraft uh, with uh, the ambition of uh, giving uh, terrestrial uh, surgeons uh, the possibility of intervening uh, on astronauts uh, if anything uh, had happened uh, during a long distance journey, like uh, the mission to Mars. Whether that that's, was going to be a sensible uh, proposition or not, considering the time lag of intervening uh, with uh, the signal, uh, especially when uh, the spacecraft were to be around Mars uh, rather than uh, nearer to the heart, uh, that could have been uh, a debatable thing. Anyway, uh, in a typical uh, 
top uh, technological development, uh, the JPL laboratory developed to be a very small robot uh, designed to fit in minimal spaces uh, because the spacecraft uh, are not large. And, um, and that uh, minimal uh, robot, uh, we took uh, the concept, uh, licensed uh, the uh, technology from, uh, um, from uh, uh, California University and uh, we have uh, we developed uh, uh, and applied uh, that very small robot for terrestrial uh, utilization in normal hospitals uh, developing specific tools in order to make it effective and uh, we used it uh, very effectively on animals uh, to do the resection of the pancreatic tail uh, which uh, is one of the most uh, challenging uh, surgical procedures uh, for the saving uh, um, patients uh, from uh, for example, uh, pancreatic tumors. Um, it worked, uh, but uh, still being very small, it was able to operate only in uh, one of the four quadrants of the abdomen uh, at a time. So we adapted uh, the design uh, in order to have a larger robot capable of operating on uh, the entire abdomen, uh, which was uh, the beta version after the alpha, clearly. Um, and uh, that robot uh, was uh, C marked, um, so it was freely uh, uh, qualified for the utilization in Europe. Uh, still very complex uh, and uh, still capable of operating only on uh, soft uh, tissues uh, like the abdomen. So we have uh, then uh, developed uh, the gamma version, which is uh, designed to operate uh, on uh, the entire body, capable. Uh, of operating on uh, soft uh, tissues uh, and uh, hard uh, tissues uh, in order to have a single uh, robotic platform uh, capable of uh, delivering uh, all uh, the procedures uh, that a normal uh, regional hospital need. And the regional hospitals uh, do not have uh, that number of uh, patients uh, with uh, the same pathology that would justify buying uh, several robots uh, for several procedures. Uh, they need one robot uh, that needs to do as many procedures uh, as possible uh, in different departments. And this is exactly what we have developed our Gamma at uh, Exurgical. Mm -hmm. When we last chatted about Exurgical, one of the really interesting things that you talked about was the democratization of surgical robotics. Why is this such an important aspect of the work uh, that you do and your 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 team does at Ex Surgical? Well, we can uh, certainly say that uh, robotic surgery has improved uh, the outcome uh, for patients uh, and uh, the safety of uh, surgical procedures. Uh, this has been demonstrated uh, during uh, the past uh, 10, 15 years. Uh, in uh, in abundant uh, number of uh, patient cases. Uh, we know that uh, a large part of uh, the surgical incidents uh, depend on uh, the bottom 20% of surgeons, uh, and uh, robotic surgery permits uh, to have uh, supervision uh, training uh, in order to enable uh, a much uh, more predictable outcome, uh, even in the hands of uh, the less uh, gifted uh, surgeons. In addition, the dexterity, scalability, and uh, operability of uh, surgical robots uh, have demonstrated uh, 
the capability of doing uh, better procedures uh, for many patients. Unfortunately, all this has been true only in uh, 6,000 uh, top uh, urban hospitals uh, in the world, and only those patients uh, that can uh, go to those uh, locations uh, are able to get the benefits of uh, surgical robotics. Furthermore, only those uh, surgeons uh, that operate in those uh, top uh, 6,000 hospitals uh, have uh, the possibility of using uh, the additional features of robotics, but they need to do it uh, with uh, the tools and devices uh, that are provided by the robot manufacturer. Uh, all these robots are uh, closed, uh, have a closed architecture, uh, and uh, the surgeons uh, cannot continue to use uh, the tools and devices uh, that they prefer uh, because uh, they are not allowed uh, to be used uh, on, uh, on uh, the existing um, um, commercial robots. So we are trying to do two things uh, to democratize uh, access uh, and benefits of uh, surgical robotics. First, with a universal platform, uh, to be able to serve uh, the other 45,000 hospitals, uh, so 10 times more than uh, those hospitals uh, that are currently served, uh, that would require uh, a more uh, flexible and uh, economical platform uh, to be economically operated uh, in uh, regional hospitals. This will open uh, the opportunity for millions of patients uh, to get the benefits uh, of surgical robotics. By having an open architecture, uh, we are also enabling uh, those uh, surgeons uh, that want to keep using uh, their uh, preferred uh, tools and devices uh, to do so because uh, we will adapt uh, in uh, our robotic uh, actuation uh, to the specific uh, features uh, of uh, tools and devices uh, in order to let uh, the surgeons uh, do the procedure in the, in the way in which uh, they think it will uh, work best. Furthermore, uh, our uh, system is uh, teleoperable uh, from uh, the onset, uh, which means uh, that uh, even in regional hospitals, uh, they can have the benefit uh, of having procedures uh, supervised uh, by the top uh, surgeons uh, living and operating uh, in large uh, urban setting, uh, but uh, being capable of uh, be there uh, virtually uh, with uh, a number of our artificial intelligence uh, tools and devices uh, that will permit uh, to compensate uh, the time lag, uh, even uh, with intercontinental operations, uh, like uh, we have uh, successfully demonstrated uh, with an orthopedic procedure uh, where uh, the surgeon was operating in Milan and uh, the mocap patient was in Boston. Mm-hmm. There's so many questions that I want to unpack from there, but you, you ended off on, uh, the use of AI. So let's, let's dig a bit deeper into that. Um, one of the applications of AI that you mentioned, uh, with X surgical is to compensate for time lag. Um, can you dig a bit deeper into specifically how AI is used to compensate for that factor? and what other applications uh, could possibly uh, be implemented with the platform? Yeah, sure. Well, um, my co-founder, uh, Professor Denovi, is uh, an expert uh, in artificial intelligence applied uh, to medical devices. Uh, so he's uh, 
the main author of uh, our uh, artificial intelligence applications. One of uh, the manifestations of uh, these applications is uh, the capability of uh, predicting which tissues uh, will be hit uh, by the tool uh, once uh, the motion is uh, going uh, to be applied. So we know from uh, the beginning uh, what is uh, the time lag uh, between uh, the operating uh, station and uh, the actuator, uh, um, bearing in mind that, that anyway there will be a local operator uh, uh, in uh, the same operating room anyway. Um, in any event, uh, yeah, once you measure uh, the time lag, uh, even for intercontinental operations like we did Milan to Boston, then you can predict uh, according to the initial motion where uh, the tool will move uh, inside uh, the body or uh, anyway on uh, the tissues of uh, the patients. And uh, with uh, the modeling of uh, the surgical theaters, uh, we can uh, create uh, boundaries uh, that cannot be, um, that cannot be um, uh, trespassed uh, in order to increase uh, safety because uh, that would mean saving uh, blood vases uh, or nerves uh, or uh, any other uh, potential difficult uh, uh, locations. Uh, and uh, that will uh, enable uh, the remote surgeon uh, to move uh, with uh, a safe uh, boundary and uh, continue to operate uh, uh, safely to complete uh, the procedure. Mm -hmm. Another important aspect of the, I guess, little speech you made before about exurgical and what uh, separates it from the competition was the implementation of uh, compatibility with third-party surgical instrumentation. Yeah. You mentioned that this is unique to ex-surgical. Why yeah. take on this unique business decision when others, when other companies have chosen not to do so? It's uh, part of uh, the concept of uh, democratizing uh, the, the access to surgical robotics. Uh, it is, uh, it would have been much easier, no? for uh, creating a positive uh, business case for us uh, to say, oh, we are doing like anybody else. You need to buy our tools and devices. We'll disable our tools and devices every 10 times uh, you use it, uh, disregarding the actual duration. And, um, um, and that would have created a, a captive uh, recurring revenue that would have been easier uh, to forecast uh, and to propose uh, for the, the financial market. But this is not uh, what we think uh, patients uh, will need uh, and uh, regional hospitals uh, will uh, require uh, in order to buy a new surgical robot. So it is a, a conscious decision to arrive uh, to a broader market uh, with a more affordable uh, proposition where uh, we will be happy to get our licensing royalty for the the uh, software development kit uh, that we're going to give to the third-party tools and device manufacturer uh, in order to enable uh, a better uh, utilization of uh, their tools uh, and therefore of uh, the number of procedures uh, that we can execute with our robot uh, 
and uh, and uh, consequently for uh, the regional hospitals uh, to have uh, a much better utilization of an expensive uh, asset uh, that they will buy and uh, that will enlarge uh, the market in our opinion. Mm -hmm. I, I understand how that leads to increased democratization as well as for local developers to meet the needs uh, of a hyperlocal, I guess, uh, hospital, for example. But what are the risks and perhaps downsides afforded by this decision? Obviously, one of them is a lack of ability or decreased ability uh, to forecast revenues. Uh, but what are what other risks are introduced by by this uh, unique decision? It's uh, fr from the financial point of view. Our uh, business case uh, is based on uh, developing uh, revenues uh, out of about 100 uh, units uh, to be sold, uh, which will uh, grant uh, already an acquisition from uh, one of the industry players uh, for uh, evaluation, uh, which traditionally in, in this sector is between one and two billion in aggregate value. So it will be more than enough to give uh, a strong return uh, to our investors. So, so there are no other particular risks uh, associated uh, with uh, this policy of being an open platform uh, because uh, we will qualify the utilization of third-party tools and devices uh, before uh, they are released to the for the utilization uh, on our platform. So everything will be in line with uh, traditional uh, clinical and uh, quality control and um, I would not foresee any particular risk uh, beside uh, the predictability of revenue generation, frankly. That's fair enough. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, the best way to support us is to go to your podcast platform, be it Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever you like, and to give us a rating and a recommendation or a comment so that others can best find us. If you can't do that, then we'd really appreciate it if you could share your favorite episode with those that you care about and who you think would find our work interesting. Till next time.